Hi, everybody, and welcome to the NeuroTwist podcast. If you are listening to this on audio, then you're going to recognize that the intro I'm doing right now is not the same as my usual intro because I am recording this on video because I have a special guest with me today, a highly requested guest, my mother. Hi, everybody. (laughs) And I thought that it would be fun for us to do this on video as kind of like a starting the new year, ending the old year, um, finishing, I guess we could call it finishing season one of the podcast, although we're not going to be taking a season break or anything. I thought it would be a fun little bonus content thing to do. So I've talked about my mom on many occasions on this podcast. She has heard me talk about her on the podcast podcast before. And um, it's it's been highly requested that I have her come on because she is a very accomplished person in the field of education. She's you're welcome. She's had a lot of experience with varying kinds of kids. Mm -hmm. And so um, first, we're going to talk about some of the professional experiences that she's had. And then we're going to talk about me and her and my growing up and all things um, personal to our life. Not all things. Some things. Just <laughs> fun stuff. Just fun stuff. So um, why don't we just start it off by mom. Give a little introduction okay. about yourself. Yeah. All right. Well, my name is Mary Starling. I am currently the principal of an elementary school in Houston. Um, this is my 11th year as a principal. And I was an assistant principal for for about seven years. I taught second and third grade as well as did um, reading intervention and specialist for about 15 years, Um, some in one district and some in another district. So I am now in year 31 of education and have enough years to retire if I'd like to, but um, (laughs) I would say that I have had um, quite a diverse experience in education. However, all the schools that I have worked in are Title I schools. And you may or may not know that in um, areas of reduced circumstance, you will see more children with um, developmental delays, with um, diagnoses of ADHD, diagnoses of autism, um, I don't know about autism being more in reduced areas necessarily, but um, I I didn't have that experience in my classroom. When I was a teacher, if somebody had autism or even ADHD, to be honest, I, I didn't really know one way or the other because when I first started, it was either a well-behaved child or a not well-behaved child. Mm. Or if a student was in special ed, they had developmental delays, they had cognitive delays, they had, um, you know, dyslexia type things, learning disabilities, I mean. Uh, So from my wealth of experience of 30 years, that has been a transformation in not only my understanding, but education's understanding. And we're still at the very, in my opinion, the very beginnings of understanding anything beyond what we know. And that is what education is. Education is very slow. Mm -hmm. And I do come from a family of educators. Both of my parents were teachers. So um, I do have that in my background as well. 
Can you explain a little bit more of what you said reduced circumstance? What does that mean in your context? Um, Low socioeconomic. Okay. Socioeconomic areas. Okay. Mm -hmm. And was that always your career objective, like to work with kids in who have a lower socioeconomic background? Not necessarily, but once I did enter that realm, um, I felt like my job meant more hmm. um, because those children do not have access to lots of resources that those in higher socioeconomic areas have. And so um, I just felt, I feel, felt more needed than I did, than I would have. I have never taught in a non-Title I school, so yeah. I don't really know what the difference really is. But Even when um, you were student teaching? Well, when I was student teaching, it was in um, a rural part of Virginia. Mm. And oh, yeah. so um, it, it, it was um, kind of across the board type uh, family. Some okay. were wealthier and some were not as wealthy. Could you talk a little bit before we like go into your professional experiences? Can you tell us about when you were in college, mm-hmm. you graduated from college in 92, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for your education as like a teacher, mm-hmm. what did you learn about special education in college? Uh, not much. Well, what was the little that I d- you learned? I don't remember learning. I'm not saying that I didn't, but I don't really remember learning anything Doesn't about stick out to you. special education at all. Or I remember becoming a teacher when I became a teacher that I reflected and said, why did, not, why did we not have more training or classes on classroom management? Mm. Because regardless of the students that you, and this, this, speaks for today and 30 years ago, regardless of the students you have in your classroom, it does come down to your classroom management. Mm. You could have four autistic kids. You could have five ADHD kids. You could have, you know, um, some, uh, you know, ID kids, any of that in your classroom. And this person is like, this is, this is too much. Why would you load me with, with all of these students that have these special needs And then this teacher over here who has a strong understanding of classroom management and systems doesn't have any issue because they know how to meet the needs of each of the kids. Mm -hmm. And then there's everybody in between. Most teachers are in between. So when you say classroom management, Mm -hmm. what does that, in your opinion, refer to? Um, The organization of your classroom, your Mm -hmm. day, your schedule, your preparedness, um, what kind of um, routines that you have in place. the relationship you have with your students, the systems that you have in place so that, because, you know, um, autistic uh, people need routine and specificity to what is happening during the day. Um, so and to be honest, most kids, most kids need that. Most kids benefit most, from Most it. kids are yeah. attracted to the classroom that is, and I don't want to use the word strict, but sometimes a, a teacher that does have very strong systems seems strict, but yeah. it's not really strict. It's just that they don't have a whole lot of like wiggle room um, in their schedule and in their routines. And that gets a lot more done in the day. But mm. um, I don't know a classroom that ha- that is stacked with a-, a large group of students with high needs. But, um, but I do know that 
you need to have an understanding of your day. You need to be well-planned, well-prepared. I mean, that those two things right there make a difference no matter what's sitting in front of you. Yeah. Well, I remember when I was in middle school mm-hmm. was probably, well, I know that's when you started your assistant principal mm-hmm. job and that was mm-hmm. my first exposure to autism because that was your first like formal mm-hmm. exposure to autism. True. So um, can you talk a little bit more about that role? Because that was like your first assistant principal mm-hmm. role, right? And mm-hmm. they kind of threw you into the, to what kind of program was it? I might be misremembering it. Okay. So every, every um, school has a special ed department. Mm-hmm. Um, I was supervisor of special ed, but within the campus that I was at, and not every campus has this um, program, but the program is called REACH in my district. Mm. And REACH is for students with autism. Now, at the time that I was at this school, we had REACH 1, REACH 2, REACH 3, and REACH 4. Mm-hmm. Um, REACH 1 are students who, and this is just me from you know childhood and what you know as a child about an autistic kid. That's the kid who is banging their head against the wall. Okay. Um, and I'm sure that there are many people who, when you hear the term autism, that's kind of the first vision you get in your mm-hmm. head. Right. And I've learned so much and I, we'll talk about this later probably, but I've learned so much about the reasoning behind that, that would make such a difference for those children and people's perspective about children that do trigger in that way. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, and then the neck, all the next levels are the different levels of the spectrum of autism. So reach for those students are, are autistic, but they don't. Probably what we would call high functioning. High functioning. Quote unquote. Yes, yes, yes. Exactly. Yeah. We call that low support needs. Low support, and, high yeah. functioning. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, the campus that I was at, and I can't remember if it was reach two or three, so I'm sorry about that. But what they had was, it's not that they were necessarily high functioning, but they weren't low functioning. Um, and they were able to be included into the general ed classroom, but they had a teacher and a classroom that they started their day and then a para or the teacher would go with them to the classroom and they would be with them one-on-one to however many kids were in one classroom or whatever, um, with them to support them and support the teacher. So they needed a little more support than, you know, a high functioning. They have since merged most of those programs there's either the the reach one end or there's the high functioning there's not the one that's kind of in between so you're either in that self-contained classroom or you are served by the in-class support inclusion teachers on the campus so I think I should put a disclaimer here that the uh, views and opinions expressed on this podcast are of our own and not reflective of the organizations that we're a part of. Right. What is your perspective on that change? How do you feel like that's been for students? You know, I um, have gone through a lot of hills and valleys on my opinion. Mm-hmm. And... In the end, in the end, (laughs) 
it's very difficult to be a teacher. Yeah. It is an incredibly difficult job. And if you are a high functioning teacher Mm -hmm. and you have all of your systems, you have your classroom management in place, all students can be included into your classroom and they should because all students are human beings. Mm -hmm. But for example, on my campus now, I have what's called a um, structure uh, unit, which is emotionally disturbed students. Many teachers will say this about these students and many teachers will say this about, I guess you might say low functioning autistic students. If you're not saying high, high support needs, high support needs, Mm -hmm. um, they shouldn't be in the class regular classroom. They need too much. They need more help than I can give them. And honestly, that probably is true because nobody is trained appropriately for the needs of students that are not general students with no um, needs whatsoever. Yeah. That is what you get in school. And of course now most of our teachers don't even go to school for teaching. They go through an alternative certification. They went to school for, I don't know, real estate or chemical engineering or something like that. And then they decide they want to be a teacher. And so they haven't even had practice being in a classroom as a student teacher, much Mm. less learn about the needs of every student in their classroom. That takes years and desire and intention. Yeah. So I'd say the majority of teachers um, would prefer the students in their classroom to be general needs classroom, mainstream, general need, mainstream students. Um, I, I do think that for safety purposes, many times it's important that there be that support though. Um, yeah. because uh, autistic stu- children, emotionally disturbed children, low cognitive students, um, you cannot anticipate when their need is being, is not being met or when their need needs to be met and what might cause them to react to that in a way that is not average or normal. Yeah. So, or maybe like in the classroom, you, you might theoretically be able to anticipate it, Mm -hmm. but systemically teachers are not given the support or resources to be able to anticipate it. No. And, and, and financially districts can't do that either. I mean, we, we've are, they're, they're, they're getting there. We're getting there. For example, this year, every campus in my district has, um, what are we calling it? this year it's a it's a space mm-hmm. um and we have a teacher that was trained as a specialist for autistic students on your campus because mm-hmm. they are coming there's more than we've ever had before mm-hmm. identified it's a space in our building it's a room that was created for students who needed a space to um not trigger what's um STEM, STEM and and calm down and all that. Like a sensory safe type of. It's a sensory, it's a sensory space. Okay. And it, things were paid for and bought. We had to order things. We had to create this sensory space. Um, 
this last two weeks was the 12 days of Christmas. We transformed the sensory space into Candyland. And it was not difficult to do because that sensory space has only been used as a sensory space. Mm -hmm. Probably the number of times on my hand or less. Because on my campus, I do believe that my teachers are very passionate about keeping their students in their classroom Mm -hmm. and are very committed to meeting their needs as best they can. Mm -hmm. But that's not typical over these 11 years. Right. Um, so they're not utilizing the space because they want to be able to, they don't need to handle it. They don't. Oh, so they're like doing well with meeting the needs of those. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good to hear. (laughs) Um, I know you have talked about that. Your like group of teachers this year has Mm -hmm. been really great. Mm -hmm. So warms my heart to hear that one (laughs) because the past few years have been challenging. I know that. Um, well, I to mean, say the least, it's and it's not the challenging part wasn't the kids. It was sort of some teachers, but mostly what the state is 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 doing to us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the challenge is what uh, our requirements are from the state more than the needs of the students. Texas problems, but yeah. I, your original question though was we were talking about your special ed and how I've changed over the years. Well, with, we were talking about your AP role and yeah. what your like what were some of the requirements of your role or or your perspectives on autism at the time that you feel influenced the way that you did your work um at that time I wouldn't say I felt like I felt more knowledgeable about autism at the Mm -hmm. time I would say I went to a couple of trainings but I don't think that it did what having a child with autism has done hmm you're talking about me Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when you reflect back on those trainings, you don't feel like they were, do you feel like they were giving you accurate information or like helpful information um, in retrospect? Um, I don't really remember them that well. That's fair. This was like 15 plus yeah. years ago. Um, but I think at the time maybe, but I don't think they, the trainings themselves changed anything that I did. Right. So what were some of the things that you did or had to do in your role specifically relating to the REACH program? Um, mainly just making sure that they followed their IEPs. Okay. And um, help them with their schedules and resources that they needed. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what, I mean, we've talked a lot about IEPs mm-hmm. on this podcast. I've certainly learned a lot about IEPs since doing this podcast. I mean, do you notice any differences across time with IEPs and like what they do to support students or what's contained within them? I think that I do more with making sure what you're doing in your classroom is aligning with what's on the IEP as opposed mm. to me having any influence over what is in the IEP. So do you still do that as a principal now? Mm-hmm. That's nice. Not as much as I did when I supervised special ed. Yeah. Um, Something that I've talked about with a lot of people is mm. that y- the teacher and like the staff in general might be following the IEP like to a T. Mm-hmm. But the IEP may not be appropriate for that child because we may 
you know, I know that, um, what's it called? Not FERPA. FIE. No, FIE I can't is remember. the original uh, um, evaluation and FERPA is, yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, but, but so I know that the intention is that we don't give placement or yeah. anything based on eligibility or diagnosis. Right. But I think that that does sometimes happen. I think that in a public school, the barrier is um, accountability. Mm. For the teachers? For or like the staff in general? The school. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you have a third and fourth grade student or even a second grade student and you feel like they need something much more modified or much more different than the, than what is generally put, we realize, though, that that student's still going to take the STAR test. Mm. So um, how how much more modified do you want to go? Right. Because if they're working at the level that they are capable of working at, you know, a fourth grade student that reads at a kindergarten level or something like that, which is, we don't have a lot of those, but I mean. It happens. Um, so you modify the curriculum to kindergarten level and then they take a star test. It's a fourth grade star test. And what's the point of that? But they have to. So um, can you talk a little, can we pause to talk a little bit about the star test? Because, um, I, I have listeners from across the U S and mm-hmm. around the world and might not be familiar with the star test. So can you just tell us a little bit about that? Well, most States do have a state assessment. Though. Well, I know, but like we didn't say the star state assessment. We said just oh, the star true. test. So That's can true. you talk a little bit about it? Okay. The star is, uh, is the state assessment and <laughs> Third and third through, I guess tenth grade takes it. Or yeah. when you're in high school, it's um end of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's algebra, English, maybe history. I think. Um, I can't remember. And then um, we get a letter grade based on how we do. The the campus does and the district does, and that does impact funding. Um. It impacts uh, just how your district is seen or how your school is seen um, in the community. But there's also a lot of uh, regulations put on the school if you don't do as well as they think that you should. Um, I testified um, at the state capitol on using letter grades like that. That's what people understand is A through F, right? But behind the A through F is so much more information that nobody understands. And I guess I see both sides of why you want it, because you want to make sure that we are instructing to the level that the state would expect. Um, But if that's all you're reaching after, and you do have students that have needs that are way beyond this one day test, that does make it complicated when it comes to creating those IEPs and and what those students need. So, yeah. Um, But I, I see that, I see that we're working on it, you know, we're working on it and that's a good thing. Yeah. (laughs) As long as it's moving in a positive direction, then do you feel like, I mean, I think that the the state assessment is like just such a big 
it's like an elephant in the room every time you're talking about education because everything revolves Mm -hmm. even down to kindergarten yeah revolves around the state assessment and I feel like I see that even from my end I mean I've gone on this soapbox on here before a million times but like I feel like you know, even when I'm working with a two-year-old, so much intervention is based around we need to make sure that they're ready for preschool. Yeah. And we're trying to get them at a preschool level before mm-hmm. they're even in preschool. And then yeah. in preschool, like, if the kindergarten teachers don't see that they're already able to, like, write their name mm-hmm. or, like, identify letters or whatever, then that's, like, they need to have learned that in preschool. But really, that's what kindergarten is for, technically. Or I'm not, I mean, I might not be speaking super intelligent on that point, but I mean like. No, you're right. They've moved everything down. Yeah. So I feel like everything is kind of like looking toward, it's like when we get to third grade, we want for the kids to be able to pass the star test by the time they enter third grade. We want them to be able to read. Because by the time they enter third grade, like it's already crunch time. Yeah. It feels like. Yeah. So like every element of education from all the way down to like the minute a child is born basically (laughs) feels like it's oriented towards in in texas feels like it's oriented Mm -hmm. towards the star test and then it's like turtles all the way down because like the funding and and my understanding of it correct me if i'm wrong is that like if you have a lower letter grade you get less funding is that the case no, that's not the case. Oh, okay. I had it backwards. Um, actually, you do get um, – there's a lot of – Nuances? Yeah, there's a lot of nuances. Um, wow. For example, there was one campus um, that had an F rating, and then there was my campus who had um, – I guess that this was a few years ago that had a D rating. I got a significant chunk of money. Mm-hmm. She didn't get any – extra money. Wow. And it was based on a score in a certain um, category. Mm. However, with funding comes tons of oversight and regulations and um, paperwork and just meetings and documentation that you have to create. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, But it's, they don't just throw money at you. <laughs> right, right. Um, okay, just to steer us, because we could just go off mm-hmm. on a on a star test tangent for hours. I don't want to do that at all. Uh, Christmas I know. vacation. Exactly. Um, so instead, how about we talk about what are some of the things professionally mm-hmm. that you feel like you have shifted the most on in your perspective regarding autism like what have been the biggest I know that it's going to come some into personally just because of me mm-hmm. but like how has your change in perspective impacted your professional outlook and anything that you do within your role which I know sometimes might be limited to only a few things because you are the principal of the whole school mm-hmm. not just the special education department so um but yeah what have been the biggest shifts for you looking at autism um, I'd say I can't limit it to autism, really. That's um, fair. I, I <laughs> this would, is a neurodiversity podcast, yeah. so it isn't limited to autism. I would say a, a huge focus for me is, is the child getting what they need to be mm-hmm. successful? Are you p- 
putting into place everything that this child needs to be successful. And this isn't, that's not really a new thought process I have, but it has been an evolving way of communicating it. Do you feel like your understanding of what a child might need to be successful has changed over time? Do you get what I'm saying? I get what you're saying. I would say not, not necessarily significantly. Mm -hmm. I've just tried to expand my understanding to others of, you know, what, for example, you have a child in your class that runs out of your classroom, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you still have to have that child in your classroom and they also do something else, you know, they like they throw chairs or something like that. Um, you've got to document, you've got to look at patterns, you've got to see what is causing that to happen. And that child might not even be autistic. They might just be hungry or mm-hmm. um, something like that. So it's really, you have to get to know every child and you have to get to know every child's strengths and, and needs mm-hmm. and l- leverage the strengths and meet the needs as best as we possibly can with the resources we have available. How can, how can teachers or administrators do that? <laughs> I know that's a broad question, but like, I think that's something that I've always like when I, when I get to go and like see you at school or like mm-hmm. see you doing school events, that's something that I've always noticed about you is like, you know, like all the kids, I don't know. I don't know how well you personally know each of the kids, but like you say, everyone you say hi to, you say hi to by name. Yeah. Like I, and that like people notice that like people, it impacts them. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the things that you do, like wisdom that you could pass along to people for like, how do you do that? How, how do you make the time and the space to get to know the strengths and needs of these kids that when we just have so much on our plates? Yeah, but that's, oh, I would hope that the, the main reason anybody got into the field of education was to impact a child. I would hope so too. So <laughs> that's forefront of my brain every day is how can I make these children's day better, this child's day better? How can I make this teacher's day better in order to make the children's day better? Mm. Um, it doesn't always work, but um, what are like practical things that you do though? Like, is there anything that you're like, I'm going to like, I'll give an example. I, I talked to someone, I can't remember who it was now on this podcast who said that they, um, they'll like plan out, they'll try like by the end of the first, you know, two weeks of class, they try to have like a five minute conversation individually with every single kid in their class. And then by the time those two weeks are up, Mm -hmm. they've been able to spend five minutes of quality time with every single one of their students. So like, is there anything that you do? Along those lines where like, you know, even if a teacher like knowing that, yes, this is the reason why I'm in this field, but like these expectations of teachers is not what I thought it was going to be. And now I'm swamped with all of these like documentation and lesson mm-hmm. planning and meetings and things that I have to do that it it's it's hard to keep it in the front of my mind because like. I have the star test coming. You know what I mean? Like, I know what, no, I know so, what you mean. So is there anything that you do like concretely? Like I make sure to do this every week or every year or whatever. Um, 
Well, one of the things that I one of the things that I started doing a few years ago was create coaching groups. Hmm. And so all of my specialists and interventionists was just about 20 people. I divided my staff up and they each have a coaching group of about two to three teachers. Mm -hmm. And so that's a person that not only instructionally coaches, but also is um, a touch point for any other needs that that teacher might have. I think that's made a big difference over the years because they don't have to come to me for venting or issues. They know where... I think it helps them understand where all their resources are because sometimes that's what teachers flail a little bit because they don't understand what we actually do have available, which mm. is quite a bit. We have 20 extra people on campus that are able to support you. Mm. Um, the other thing that I do is something that I call status of the class. And it's a, a once a nine weeks after report cards, we sit and we go through every student in their class and they have to talk through each child's strengths, gaps, needs, um, levels. Um, they also talk about, we talk about their attendance. We talk about any behavior things and what, then they have to show me with black and white paperwork, what they have done in order to meet their needs with okay. academics or with behavior. And then if they have done nothing, then I have other people in the room. I have other a specialists and stuff like that in the room. And we talk through plans for those students that aren't actually getting what they need. So you have done things administratively mm -hmm. to put accountability onto the teachers so mm -hmm. that like almost like they kind of have to do it in a sense. Well, yeah. Yes and no. I mean, yeah. if they don't do it, then that's a whole nother conversation. So. Right. Right. Um, is there anything that you have done as like since kind of learning and changing your understanding about autism and neurodiversity mm -hmm. Is there anything that you have done within your campus, like, you know, it, during like in services with your teachers or anything to try and like spread your newly found knowledge about it or like or, or even like individual conversations with teachers if they're like, I'm struggling with this, like, I can't get this kid to do anything. And then you're like, wait, let's take a pause and think about this. Is that something that you have found Probably yourself? not as much as you would like for me to. Oh, I'm... <laughs> I really that think is it, not your whole job. I think, so. I think it comes down to um, reality checking people. Mm, because yeah. like I said, I work in a very extremely low socioeconomic area. Mm -hmm. And not to be graphic, but, um, you know, along the street that's right next to my school are a lot of drugs happening and a lot of other businesses, if you know what I mean, happening. Um, with ladies. And mm -hmm. so that's happening all up and down the, the street next to the apartments where the kids live in the apartments. So I'd say that autism itself isn't top of mind. Mm -hmm. It's what happened at their house before they came to school today that caused them to react to situations in a yeah. um, not average manner. And a lot of times it's because they're hungry. It's because their mom got beat up by their boyfriend. It's because their dad went to jail or it's, you know, yeah. it's, it, there's a whole spectrum of that. So I think, um, my, what I communicate is to be at this school, you have to love these kids that are yeah. in this school, however they come to this school. Yes. And then you meet the need of these kids and access the resources that are available. It's so important. 
You don't just sit on an island in your classroom and be just like, I don't know what to do. We have so much assistance and support and resources at my school. Use those. You got to love the kids. You got to love being a teacher. Yeah. If you don't love being a teacher, you definitely shouldn't be at this school. Right. Because you have to use all of your teaching skills. Yeah. Um, Because they come in with all levels. It's a highly bilingual campus. So they come from lots of different countries and things like that. So um, it's, it's not really a focus on autism. It's a focus on children. I think that that's like a, um, even a good reality check for me because we're sitting here as like two white women mm-hmm. and the neurodiversity conversation does often center around white people, white women. Mm-hmm. I mean, even myself, I think about that so much because like I would never consider myself to be a representative for autism ever because I'm a white woman able to mm-hmm. mask most people would not like look at me on the street yeah. and think think twice right and regardless of how I feel about that like I could go into all of the things that are difficult for me about like oh masking is so emotionally tasking and it caused mm-hmm. me a lot of problems but like regardless if we're not thinking intersectionally about it then we're leaving so many members of the community behind. Mm -hmm. And then like, yeah, I mean, I I think you're just spot on with that. And I think that that's like the, um, that can be the biggest change I think for any like teacher or therapy professional is like really radically loving each kid Mm -hmm. regardless Mm -hmm of where they're at. Yes. And I think that that, I mean, I could get so heated about it, but I do often feel like some people's love for kids and education and therapy can be a little bit conditional. Of course. And, you know, sometimes I feel like if I hear one more person say like, I can't get this kid to do anything, I'm going to rip my hair out yeah. because that's that shouldn't be your objective right? going into any situation with a child, especially if you're an educator or a therapist. Mm-hmm. But but I think that's like the, the biggest thing is like leading – we all – like we say a lot of times connection over compliance mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. neurodiversity affirming therapy yeah. world. And I really see connection as also love and you like have to lead with that or you're not making a difference Mm -hmm. for anybody. Yeah. So I think you're right. Do you have anything about that you could tell like to parents about advocating for their kids in the school? Like, is there, I know, I know that the work that you do with parents is a little bit different because of the backgrounds that they come from, but is there anything that like advice you've given to parents yourself or like wisdom that you could pass along in general? I'd say with any background, but certainly if I'm talking about my parents is come to the arts. Mm. <laughs> Don't just call in physically attend the arts, pay attention to what's being said in the arts because it's a lot of edge you speak. Mm-hmm. And so my, my, I always say in any art where a parent really pushes us and challenges what we're saying, I always tell them, thank you. Yeah. Because you are making us better. You are building our capacity. When you don't, then we just go along with the, you know, just clicking on IEPs that all the other third graders have or whatever. Yeah. 
you have to ask questions because this is about your child. Do you feel like your perspective on that has changed over time about like getting pushback from parents or parents bringing advocates? Pro- like, probably. I'm sure feel- there was a time where I was not comfortable with being yeah. with, with confront, not confrontation, but just, you know, tension, tension. Sure. Yeah. From parents. Yeah. And that might have been from other people's perspective, you know, opinions before a meeting or something like that. You know, right, right. uh, You know, I everybody wants to be listened to. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um. But I would say that that, and just be as involved as you can in your child's education and life. And I can speak as a you know as a single parent who is in education. I was not able to go to all of the things that my children were involved in at school. 95%, I would say still. You, I mean, I never, I never took you for someone who wasn't able to be present. So, um, but you know, even when both my kids were in high school, we, they were in 504, um, not for autism, but, um, for things that probably were part of that. And, I appreciated it when all the teachers were there to talk about my child and tell me their perspectives about my child. I cried every time. It was really embarrassing. But, you know, when you're talking about your own child, you're passionate about that. and You want them to have what they need and be happy. And um, that's why I'm not saying I want parents to come up and cry. I just <laughs> I just want them to be there yeah. and to be paying attention, listening. And so and at my campus, you know, they come with language barriers, but we yeah. always have an interpreter there. So, but, but the, the people that are sharing the testing information or whatever, many times are not Spanish speakers. Mm-hmm. And so they'll say everything in English and then has to be interpreted and it's it can be long and drawn out, but yeah, but it's your child. So yeah, just be there. And there's practical realities that can impact that as well. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I know a lot of your parents are probably like working multiple jobs mm-hmm. to support True. their families and, True. Um, so, which was somewhat of a practical reality for you as well because of circumstances. Um, but I think we can start talk because people have had a lot of questions in the course of me having this podcast about my upbringing and I only remember so much from my childhood. Um, I always kind of feel like I, not like intentionally, but I think because of, the just the way that my brain is I feel like I missed a lot of my childhood in a way like I wasn't fully present for it sometimes because of probably sensory overload and stuff like that so sometimes I just feel like I don't know if it's just me or if I truly have like a more foggy memory than I otherwise would I don't know so I've had a lot of people ask me questions about it and I never really know how to answer in full detail without feeling like I'm lying or like projecting memories onto my childhood. So um, I think the first one, and you know, like these are all big, broad questions. So um, a a lot of people just want to know, like, what was I like as a child or things that maybe in retrospect or at the time you felt like ended up being characteristics of what we now know is autism. Well, as somebody who's still learning mm-hmm. about all the characteristics of autism, mm-hmm. um, from my perspective, you were a very happy child. I was a very happy child. Very happy child. And you were able to express your 
Very expressive child. Mm -hmm. Very expressive. Um, You had a lot of sensory uh, differences. Complaints. Um, Things were too loud. um, Smelled weird. Looked weird. Felt weird. (laughs) When did you first notice that with me? Because, Um, I mean, I'll say, I'll mention this later. I mean, um, I know when I know the first things I remember noticing, but like, how young do you feel like I was when you first started um, noticing sensory differences? I, I don't know if I can remember that. I would say I'm going to go with maybe around puberty for both oh. ish. You like, don't feel like you noticed anything when I was like a little, little kid? No. Oh, okay. No. Now I'm not saying that I didn't. I'm just saying I don't remember it when right. you were little. Um, yeah. I, I remember it more distinctly. Um, like, Around fifth grade, 10, mm-hmm. 11, that, that time frame when your body is changing, your brain is changing, your, your outlook on the world, your interaction with people, your relationship with your friends and your family and all, all those things. There's so much going on at that time that it's difficult to separate. Is this something that is something that I need to look into? And, and, and to be honest, Anytime, for example, um, when you had the the thing on the roof, you know, the stuff on the roof of your mouth, right? Or no, no, no. I'm sorry. The thing with your eyes. Yeah, I remember that. Um, I had a, a, just to the listeners, I had like, I don't know what you would call it now. You always call it like a lazy eye. Right? Like a droopy eye. Ish. Yeah. Yeah. Was that what you were worried about? I wasn't worried about it. You were worried about it. I don't remember being worried about it. Um, well, both of my kids had many medical emergencies that turned out to be nothing. Yeah. Which is fine. I, 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 and I told them every time I took them to the doctor for this medical emergency and the doctor said, this is what it is. It's fine. No, they don't need medication or they could take this and that might make them you know, feel better or whatever. But we went to, um, and I, I'm trying to remember. I feel like we did something else and they also took a picture of you. We did neurology. It might have been neurology and they took a picture and it clearly showed one eye halfway closed and one yeah. eye big. And I know. I look at myself now and wonder if it's still like that. I do. It's this one, right? I think everybody has one eye that's a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Well, I remember. I do. I don't remember ever bringing that concern to you. I felt like you had pointed it out with me. Maybe. I, I don't remember, but um, I do remember looking at it after, I think after you pointed out and being like, oh, that's significant. And I hadn't, well, sorry. You know, as a kid, I wasn't thinking that significant. It was more like, what's yeah. up? But yeah. Anyway, go on. But, um, you know, she states now that she, um, you state now that you have complications with friendships and relationships and things like that and, and staying connected with people. Wait, but, but you didn't finish the thing about my eye. I I mean, that's just all I have to say. That was, was it? Nothing else happened. We just went. Wait, and then got why it. did you bring it up? I don't know. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Okay, so friendship. I'm, I'm just talking through no, your no, questions. No, it's fine. So I'm it's trying fine. to get, I'm trying to get to a more of a point. Yeah, it's fine. Keep going. Keep going. Um, you know, when you were, you, you went through many friendship groupings and phases yeah so I never felt like you had difficulty connecting with people difficulty building relationships 
you felt that way and I understand why. And that's because you built very close relationships and then they split and then you never heard from them again. So yeah, that's very complicated, but. Or a lot of times it was like, I would float from friend group to friend mm-hmm. group or between friend group and friend group, but I was always kind of on the outskirts of it. I wasn't like in the friend group. At least in like elementary school and middle school, it wasn't really until I would say high school that I feel like I was in a friend group, and even that, I mean, we know how. I mean, in my perspective on it was was like I um like had some friends in elementary school, but like I don't know if I ever went to a sleepover in elementary school. Like I would hear people talk about it, but was that your fault? Did you not want me going to sleepovers? I don't think you were that interested in sleepovers. I guess I wasn't. Maybe not. I don't really think I don't you were. Like you I wanted a ever... sleepover at our house. You loved having sleepovers at our house. Well, I don't think I ever hosted one until my 10th birthday party. The infamous 10th birthday party sleepover. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is the story that she's told you millions of times. It's her 10th birthday party. Yeah. So she planned. Listen. It's not just her 10th birthday party that she planned. She planned every birthday party up until never, up until now. She plans every birthday up to the minute. You also do that, by the way. Sometimes. (laughs) Okay, go on, though. Um, But what was so significant about my 10th birthday party, though? Her 10th birthday party, we went skating, Mm -hmm. and then we had a sleepover at the house. And it was a big group of girls. It was probably, um, and they were from different Different places. places. Like there were girls from the soccer team. There were our friend that lived on our street. There were girls from your class, I guess. school, yeah. Um, And so it was a group of, I don't know. I feel like it was at least 10. I think it was more than 10. Okay. I said at least, so. um, And so she had it down to the minute. Yeah. And the skating party part was fine. When we got back to the house, the girls all had things they wanted to do. Let's do this. Let's let's eat this. Let's watch this movie. Let's play this game. But she had planned out every single thing, every minute of that evening. So first thing we had to do this. Second, and so when the girls wanted to do something different, she would. And, and the thing is, like, you didn't. It didn't ruin the party or anything like that. I could just tell that you were upset that it went off course. Yeah, But even though it went off course, you still managed to, I feel like, enjoy the party for the most part. Yeah. I still am a little bit upset about some of the things that we didn't get to do. <laughs> because I think we I, did them the next day or something with... Um, with some other with, people. Yes, with yeah. other people. Because <laughs> I... Or that weekend. Or I, rem- like I remember thinking, like, this is the way that you have fun. And even now to this day, I still am like, you, like, you have fun by doing this. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, you, you don't, like, fun doesn't just spontaneously happen. But the difference now is you communicate those thoughts. Well, I know. I know that I do. So somebody can be like, eh, that's a weird thing to say or... I know. I know it's a little bit of a weird thing to say, but I think that that's like my, that's, that's truly what I believe is like, I don't, at least for me, I don't feel like I can have fun unless we have made a plan to have fun. There's nothing wrong with that. Because otherwise, like, I don't know what I'm, I'm just floating, floating around. Um, was there any other like 
characteristics that you look back in retrospect and think like, oh, that was it. That was not really. Yeah. Um, You've, you've explained things that happened in your childhood that are characteristics of autism. And then I guess the other thing is, um, you, and you just told this story also, but when you memorized that Jerry Maguire, I mean, that Lizzie McGuire song. Yeah. I that told was, that in my diagnosis. That was story. insane. Um, I just, I couldn't figure that out. It didn't, <laughs> it didn't scream autism to me, but the fact that you went to the movie, uh-huh. you came home after the movie, you were able to sing the entire song. Yeah. And I was like, what's, and then I played it. I'm like, how did you know that song? I did but, that with a lot of songs though. I mean, I, you I, do that with songs and languages and all kinds of stuff. Yes. And so that's the, I, I would say the number one um characteristic is how smart both of my kids are Mm. because no matter what spectrum you are Mm -hmm. you are smart Mm. an autistic person is the smartest person you'll meet Mm. and you guys are extremely smart do you did I was just talking on another episode about or what was I talking on oh on the webinar that we just hosted Mm -hmm. I don't know if this is an observation that you made of me, but when I think back on my childhood, I feel like I played in a way that was pretty autistic. Did you notice anything about the way that I would play that in retrospect makes you no. think that? Do you ever remember me like playing with somebody and like telling them what to do and say while we were playing, no. like playing with Barbies? No. Okay, well, I remember doing that. I'm, I'm not, not saying you didn't do that. I'm, I'm not lying. Or do you remember like, um, do you remember me playing with my stuffed animals where I would watch a movie with them? Yes. Yeah. And I would give them all tickets and I would line them up on the couch. Why would, I don't understand that as an autistic. That's fancy way of lining up your toys. Okay. That's literally just lining up your we toys. We did that once a week. All these stuffed animals have to watch the movie. <laughs> So, I, okay, I just, I wanted to make sure I wasn't misremembering that because that I feel like is, this is the thing, you know, um, you, you got yourself assessed and diagnosed. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's like if somebody got themselves assessed and diagnosed with asthma or I have high blood pressure. Okay. Yeah. I have to take medication for it. Mm-hmm. I have high blood pressure. Yeah. Now, just because. I don't faint every day mm-hmm. or something like that doesn't mean I don't have high blood pressure. Right. Um, same. You are clearly extremely at the high functioning end of, I don't think y'all use spectrum anymore either. Right. No, we don't really say high functioning and we don't, I mean, I don't know that we wouldn't say spectrum. I think just the conceptualization of what the spectrum means okay. is different. Um, and then high functioning we don't use that in favor of saying lower support needs okay. because I think that just to explain it a little bit more, like low high functioning as a label negates. There's a couple problems with it, but one of the problems is that it negates the fact that like no matter where you're at on on the spectrum, so to speak, you still require support. And that is one of the defining characteristics of the diagnosis. And so for me to say I'm low support needs, it still acknowledges that I do have support needs. But the difference, so this is the, um, I think from my perspective that your, um, um, what's the word? 
can't think of the word. You took care of yourself, okay? Mm, And from that moment, and then when you communicated to my parents, to the family, to your boyfriend and his family, everybody in your world, it's not that you became a different person because you're definitely the exact same person, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, You might think that you've changed some things about you, the non-masking and all of that. With me, I don't think you ever masked with me personally, so maybe that's why I didn't necessarily notice it. Um, is you, you, you communicate in a way for people to understand the support that you need. Yeah. So you have become the person that you are. Yeah. And so I agree with I, that. I feel like you're lucky in that regard. Oh, I definitely feel like I'm lucky. You, you know, you survived your childhood and <laughs> all that came with that, which it was your childhood was fun. Everybody's <laughs> yeah. childhood has hills and valleys. I know. <laughs> um, I had to go through middle school too. Wouldn't do it again. Um, sorry if that picked up on the camera. Something went up with my chair or the microphone. <laughs> anyway, go on. Um, but, and that's what's important about growing up also is you yeah. use that time to find yourself and be who you truly are. Yeah. And be a contributing member of society. And Everything that you're doing leads to contributing to society. You contribute mm-hmm. to those children. You contribute to everybody that's learning. Like I tell people, listen to your podcast all the time if they have an autistic child, because I have learned so much about her and autism through the podcast. So even though yeah. everything she says on the podcast, she's already said to me several times. <laughs> uh, I, she hasn't practiced with me. She just... I just, this is we just all I do. We talk yeah. a lot. <laughs> this is just all, the only so. thing I think about. I do, I have been saying lately that I feel like 99% of my maturity, I guess, I keep using the term maturity because I do feel like that plays into it, but um, has come in the last like year and a half. Like I, that's, how, that's honestly how I feel. I think that I've like always put on a sense of maturity, but I think that my actual like internal maturity. Okay. okay. And I mean, like that's what I think people say that like 25 or 26 is when you like finish growing your brain or something like Except that. Boys. So I don't, I, I have nothing. I don't know about boys. There's no boys here. So <laughs> um, she was born a teenager. So when she keeps saying maturity, that's different because she's always had, quite a mature presence Mm. about her and bossy (laughs) stuff like that we don't say bossy anymore mom we don't say bossy about women we will tell my mother that okay (laughs) i will we'll have her on next good (laughs) if you like me at all you're gonna go bananas about my mother (laughs) um can we talk a little bit about Um, the, like the biggest characteristic that I feel like impacted me the most my entire life has been my sound sensitivity. True. Can you talk a little bit about, I know you say you didn't notice it until I like hit puberty or like was, you know, fifth grade or something, but like I've, I like all of my earliest memories, I feel like I've had sound sensitivity. So can you like describe more like what that was well, like from your perspective okay mothers i'm talking to mothers um all mothers you know have missteps 
oh. as parents. And to be honest, most of the time that you complained about your sound sensitivity, I thought you were just being dramatic. Oh. Mm-hmm. Because you are very dramatic. I am. Just like I am. Yeah. We are pretty similar. We are. Um, For better or worse. So <laughs> I thought that when you complained about it, I guess I just thought you were annoyed by things. I don't know. I, I, I didn't. I, that alone, that, that characteristic alone was not impactful enough for me to think there was anything more Mm. that needed to be done than to listen to you complain about it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Sorry. No, it's okay. It happens. (laughs) I don't know. But like, what, what made you realize that it was like as significant as I was saying it was? Um when we went to Austin and went to the doctor that gave you the. Well, but we had been to doctors and stuff before that, but that it just had, well, I mean, you had done all the research and you found the misophonia. misophonia yeah. Misophonia. Misophonia yeah. information, all that. Then I knew it was impacting you in a deep, dark way. Yeah. So I just support, I just wanted to support you because there's only so much you can do because the world is noise. Right. So, um, but you have, that's just where you, I mean, you wear those headphones and you're like, this is me. Yep. I'm wearing them. I do. So, um, and of course everybody wears them anyway. So I know. Yeah. Luckily, luckily it's sorry. You don't get more attention (laughs) from wearing them because everybody wears them. It's fine. I don't need the, I don't wear them for attention. (laughs) I wear them out of a deep, I would need, (laughs) A deep need to not hear things. Um, What about when I um, told you that I wanted to start going to therapy? In high school? Yeah. I I felt like I probably should have taken y'all sooner. Mm. But I, I, I think I kind of waited. You know, I was pretty regular with checkups and taking you guys to the doctors and stuff like that. And so I really counted on and, and, and leaned on medical advice because Mm. we went to the same doctors. We stayed with the same pediatric um, organization and everything. So I would express and you would express where you were in mental and physical health. Mm -hmm. And if they were to recommend that, I would have done it sooner, Um, but I wasn't surprised Mm -hmm. because you come from a divorced family Mm. and there were not traumatic experiences or anything like that. I wouldn't, I don't, I don't think there were any traumatic experiences, but difficult, but that kind of life, I I didn't have to go through that. Yeah. I have a solid family core and I have a solid family core. I know, but what I'm saying is I, I felt like somebody professional could help you navigate when you are ready to navigate, I didn't want to, yeah. I didn't want to say you need help with that. Right. Cause you are, uh, you speak up for yourself. You always have. So, yeah. Okay. What are some of your favorite memories from my childhood of me? <laughs> um, this very tiny one is one of my favorites. One morning it was probably in the summer because of what oh. I'm about to tell you. Um, <laughs> Is this my first time hearing this story? I doubt it. Okay. (laughs) 
It's very short. Uh, I run into the bedroom, jumped on the bed, and you said, guess what? It's Tuesday! And you were just so excited for it to be Tuesday. And I was like, what happens on Tuesday? You're like, it's Tuesday! You were just so, That's it? Um, just, that's what I mean by you were a very happy kid. You were very, um, happy. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite things that you did was you, um, read to your brother. Mm -hmm. You taught him to read quickly. You you learned to read very quickly and then he learned to read very quickly because you would read to him and then he learned how to read. Let me ask you this. How old do you think I was when I knew how to read? When I was like reading whatever kind of books, picture books, whatever. Probably between three and four. Okay. Okay. That's a little bit. I I thought I was a little bit earlier, but you know more than me. So um, because I'm on a little bit of a mission now to figure out if I'm hyperlexic. You probably did read some things like because you started talking before you started walking. And so mm-hmm. when you're able to talk, you also want to communicate with visual things. But um, I didn't write it down or anything like that. Oh, so I, I know. don't know, but I would say it was around three. Okay. That's um, still early. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I just burped. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I'm on a, I'm on a mission right now to figure out if I'm hyperlexic. Like I haven't, I have a hyperlexia expert on the podcast in a few weeks who I'm going to make her like, <laughs> not make her. <laughs> Part of our segment is going to be like, am I hyperlexic or not? Because I don't know. Hi, do you you know hyperlexic? No, but how will it? I mean, what difference? No, will it, it, it make? wouldn't. Just make so any... you know more about it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because I feel like I am, but then again, I don't know enough about hyperlexia, and that's it's like I when I explain it to parents, I say like, have you heard about dyslexia? It's like the opposite. Gotcha. Where like you are way like early at reading. recognize everything really quickly and all that there's yeah. there's like precocious reading which is early so I'm either a precocious reader mm-hmm. where I learned how to read before I should have or I'm hyperlexic you definitely read before you should have right but it was I know. really memorizing books that I'd read to you really easy books but that's still yeah huge I mean you'd still have to remember yeah. to turn the page the right way and all of that yeah that's I get thing. I mean I guess I'll find out but okay yeah. Any other favorite memories of me? Um, I mean, like when you were little, little. Yeah. Or, like, okay. Or I don't know. I mean, I feel like I feel like teenagers are kind of crappy, so <laughs> I don't feel like there's many favorite memories of me being a teenager. Um, anytime I went to school, every teacher loved you. Yeah. Um, this is a hilarious one. Oh. And I've told this one before. Okay. I think it's hilarious. Maybe not anybody thinks it's hilarious, but every year before school started, hmm. who's my teacher going to be? Are the kids going to like me? Who's going to be in my class? That's I hope not I, hilarious. I hope everybody <laughs> likes me. She was with the same group of kids every year in elementary school because she was, she ran with the GT track. And so those kids stayed in the same cohort from first grade to fifth grade. Every summer. Oh my gosh. I'm so scared for school to start. I hope I, you know, are they going to like them? They're going to be the same kids that you were just with. (laughs) That's not funny. That's a little bit sad. (laughs) Um, I have too many. It's like, I have too many memories. Well, I know because I'm 26 years old. So 
That's 26 years of of me. <laughs> um, okay, so then I guess to cap it off, <coughs> are there any traits about, because you just said that we're very similar. <coughs> Sorry, I made it through the whole thing. Bless you. End. Um, it was a cough. Are there any traits about me, because we are very similar, that you also see in yourself? And also, has me receiving a diagnosis made you wonder if you might also be neurodivergent? I'm not smart enough to be neurodivergent. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Intelli- IQ or anything like that is not part of the diagnostic criteria, <laughs> but still, by the way. But still. But well, so then. I'm, I am. I'm just like the most typical person, typical white lady you'll ever meet. I really am. I just am. Okay. Um, and I grew up, I mean, my childhood, my life, my family is just so typical. <laughs> I feel like that it, it didn't run that way. I don't okay. know. Well, we're both bossy. <laughs> We like things the way... Bossy is not politically correct, everybody. <laughs> Just so you know, I would never like use the term bossy to describe myself or my to mother. To be listened to. We like to be listened to. I do. And we like attention. <laughs> and... Also not... We're a little dramatic. <laughs> and we both like to talk a lot. <laughs> we just like to talk a lot. Um, That's true. <laughs> but other characteristics, um, I guess our spelt bodies. Are what? You know, thin, real thin, <laughs> you know. Did you say spelt? Spelt? I've never heard that word. Svelt. I means skinny. Define svelt. <laughs> Slender and elegant. It's French or Italian. Svelto. <laughs> That's cool. Well, uh, I'm joking. That's a joke. I know it's a joke, but um, I really wanted to know what that meant. Our love of candy. Yes. That never ends. Yes. Um, Do you like sour candy? No. Oh. And the importance of family. Yes. I think. And, and keeping those connections going, even though sometimes it can be quite complicated and difficult. Um, importance of friendships and doing everything we can to maintain them um that's not a character well I guess that is a characteristic I don't I I don't know just like any I don't know what do you think um I think that I do think that both of our need for like structure does impact both of us I don't feel like I have that need you just talked about classroom management. Oh. I mean, like, I, I think okay. I think that we both have, like, we like things to be predictable. We like things to, um, we both, like, have our routines. That's true. Um, do you ever, do you feel like you have any, like, sensory things that? I think because of you, I do, I am pick, impacted by noise more than. Really? Yes, just because I'm sensitive for you. So something I may not have no- noticed without knowing you. Yeah. Like you don't have to be with me for it to happen. But yeah. no, being around you and wanting to protect you from mm. that, um, I notice things more. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just 
Yeah. But it is, I do feel bad about that a no. lot of times because, like, I do not want anyone to be as afflicted by it as I am. And so I hate, hate's a strong word, but, like, I, I kind of get frustrated with myself that, like, I've made it kind of such a part of my personality, I guess, that it impacts other people. But I don't know what else to do. I don't, it doesn't afflict I, me. I just notice yeah. it probably more than I would. Yeah. That makes sense. Anyways, yeah. Not you don't feel like you like to wear certain clothes or like oh you know what we both like to keep our houses really dim <laughs> you like never I I I think I got my aversion to the big light from you <laughs> I don't like bright light that's true yeah I'd rather have the shades no, like, open or a lamp both, on yeah or exactly like, like yeah. you never have the ceiling fan light on Mm-mm. I don't even know how to turn the ceiling fan light on in your room I think you like, di- yeah, you like disabled it. Like there's no light switch for it. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> no, but I- I'm going to tell you part of the reason for that. Not the reason. I don't know if reason's the right word. I can't see. Yeah. Like I can't see. Yeah. Same. So if I don't have my contacts in, like these are reading glasses, but yeah, if I don't have my contacts in at home, mm-hmm. and I don't have my glasses, even if I have my glasses on, they're not that great glasses. They're home glasses. Mm-hmm. I have to manage by feel mm. so I don't putting a light on isn't going to make me see things better yeah it's going to just be a bunch of blur yeah but if it's dark then I can navigate it just feels so. comfier too true this shit like I never the only time I've ever used this chandelier up here is right it's now pretty. and I want that chandelier right now no y'all can't see it and I'm not going to move the camera that would be <laughs> weird um it's beautiful yeah well do you have any final thoughts or anything before Um, we come to a close I'm very proud of my daughter very Mm -hmm. proud of you for navigating all the things you've ever navigated and that's from your autism diagnosis to your familial difficulties to um, you know because like I said it hasn't been it wasn't a traumatic childhood but you did have to navigate a lot um and still do I know yeah um but I'm also um it's nice to get to know you um as an adult oh you know I think that um I I don't think our relationship has necessarily changed I mean you've grown and yeah I've wrinkled but (laughs) yeah But it's nice. I'm glad that we're still connected as adults. Yeah. And I'm glad you live close. We get to see each other all the time and all that. But I'm very proud of you. I'm proud of the work that you've done. You're, you know, she's, you are so committed to what you're doing. And that is a model to others around you. And you're very um, firm in your, you know, beliefs and your convictions and all of that. And as long as they're not immoral. Um, and, um, I hope you get rich from your podcast and buy me a new house. (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, um, please (laughs) rate and review this episode. If you want me to get rich from this podcast. Exactly. Um, And thank you all for your support. And it's almost been a year of this podcast, a year in March. Um, we've had so many great episodes. I hope that y'all enjoyed this episode. 
And um, if y'all want to hear an episode from me and my mom again in the future, please let us know because, I, I mean, we live five minutes away from each other, so I'm sure we can and work we like it out. we like staring at ourselves while we talk. And we do. It's not weird or strange at <laughs> all, which is great. Um, so, yeah, please uh, share this episode if you want. Um, rate and review. And I'm going to have more episodes coming out for y'all very soon. So please look forward to that. And Happy New Year, because it's going to be New Year's Day when this and one comes out. And send her more questions, and we can answer it through Instagram, too. That's true, yes. If you have any questions, please let us know. But thank you guys so much. Catch you all again. Happy New Year. Bye. Bye.